My guest today works for the United Nations Global Compact, but she's not a diplomat and she's not an aid worker. Instead, she works with the private sector. Is the, the UN Global Compact is the UN's linkage to the world of business. Carly Porter is the newly installed Executive Director of the Global Compact Network Australia. The organisation is founded on a set of 10 principles that companies agree to abide by when they sign up. It's been described as the world's largest corporate social responsibility framework. And while it doesn't enforce any rules or dole out any punishment if companies step outside the principles, it instead operates as a network of companies who are signalling their commitment to reducing environmental impact and becoming better corporate citizens. This is the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and how your investment and spending decisions can have an impact. Now, Carly's worked for a whole range of large Aussie companies. She's worked in the nonprofit sector as well, but now she's pulling it all together to help guide companies towards better standards and more accountability. We talk all about the forces that are driving big companies to change and adapt. And I wanted to know if it was the growing voices of the public, as well as investor influence, that was having a bigger impact than government regulation. We also dig into the new legislation around modern slavery in supply chains, which is super interesting and something we should all be aware of. Now, there's a little bit of background noise from Kylie's doggos midway through. Apparently, they were just a little overexcited when her partner got home. All right, well, please let me know if you've got any comments on this one. Shoot me an email or leave me a message. And as usual, I'll put the show notes on my website at johntreadgold.com. All right, here we go. That might be a good place to start. I mean, the United Nations Global Compact, it's part of the UN, but it's quite different to what people may expect the UN to be doing. You're executive director of the Australian chapter. And I wonder, is engaging with the private sector a a relatively new direction for the UN? Uh, Not necessarily. I think the UN Global Compact was announced by Kofi Annan in 1999. So, We're getting up to 20 years now since he announced that. And it was launched at the UN headquarters in 2000. And even then, it was set up, unlike many other UN bodies, to really be focused on the private sector. So the UN Global Compact is a business-led initiative. And whilst it engages with other sectors, such as um, NGOs, academics and the government, its overall mission is to mobilise a global movement of sustainable companies and their stakeholders to create a better future. So this includes things like supporting businesses to act responsibly by aligning their strategies to 10 universal principles and taking strategic actions to advance societal goals such as the SDGs or the Sustainable Development Goals. I don't think it's a new thing for the UN to engage the private sector, but I think What we're seeing now is that there are a lot of other UN bodies who are seeing the benefits of working more closely with the private sector and in some respects taking a leaf out of the UN Global Compact's books. So it's voluntary for companies to sign up? Yes, yes, it's voluntary for companies to sign up. The companies who sign up to the UN Global Compact are agreeing to abide by the 10 principles which cover 
elements of human rights, labour rights, environment and anti-corruption. But yes, it's definitely a voluntary initiative. So it's a good way for companies to demonstrate on a global scale what they're doing to be responsible businesses and to advocate for more responsible business practices. Okay, so it kind of lets companies set themselves apart. Is it, is it a bit like being certified organic and identify companies that have signed on and assume they're taking their responsibilities more seriously than their peers? Is that sort of the, the nature of it? The UN Global Compact's not a performance or assessment tool. So while it doesn't make judgments on a company's sustainability performance, members are still required to publish a report that demonstrates how they're supporting the UN Global Compact, the 10 principles and those broader societal goals. Unlike some of the other certified bodies, we don't go in there and and go through all of their sustainability reports or annual reports with a fine tooth comb to check how they're going about delivering on those 10 commitments. But what we do do is make sure that every year that they submit what is called a communication on progress, that we check that they're demonstrating what they're doing towards human rights, what they're doing towards supporting labour rights, what they're doing in respect to anti-corruption and what they're doing in regards to the environment. Similar to the other certification bodies, we do, however, list all of our members publicly and those who are non-communicating, so for example, those who don't submit a communication on progress, are also listed on the website. So it's publicly available information about what they're communicating on, and it allows both individuals and investors to go to the UN Global Compact's website, see which companies are members and how those companies are reporting on their progress and demonstrating how they're committed to the UN Global Compact's 10 principles. Yeah, I mean, I think I found a great quote which captures that element that it's not a regulator and it's not binding, but that you guys are guide dogs, not watchdogs. Absolutely. I think that that sums it up well and that it's really just giving people more information about about companies and how they're operating and, and I guess the 10 principles are guidelines for them to operate under. Can you give us some more details about the 10 principles? You sort of, I guess, gave us sort of the four top categories, but then it's broken down into more details in, in the 10 principles. Yes, as I said before, there are four broad overarching principles of the UN Global Compact, which are human rights, labour rights, environment and anti-corruption. So under human rights, companies are agreeing to do things such as supporting and respecting the protection of internationally proclaimed human rights. So these are things such as the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, and also making sure they're not complicit in human rights abuses. With regards to labour, there are four principles that sit under that. These include things such as upholding freedom of association, the right to collective bargaining, the elimination of forced and compulsory labour, which we would all know more colloquially these days as modern slavery, the effective abolition of child labour, and then also the elimination of discrimination in respect to employment and occupation. With regard to environment, there are three principles around that, and they include things like taking a precautionary approach to environmental challenges, such as climate change or pollution, undertaking initiatives to promote greater environmental responsibility. So these might be things such as initiatives to replace plastic in the manufacturing and production cycles and encouraging the development of environmentally friendly technologies. And then with anti-corruption, this is effectively that businesses agree to work against corruption in all its forms. So this includes things like extortion and bribery. 
And so when a company signs up to those 10 principles, they're also agreeing to demonstrate what they're doing towards achieving those 10 principles. There's no requirement for them to demonstrate that they're doing all of that on day one. And that's what we're really here to do, to assist those companies in understanding what sustainable and responsible business practices are and helping them to become more sophisticated in their approach. So like you said, we're guide dogs, we're not watchdogs, we're a facilitator and we're a networker and we're here to promote those responsible business practices and encourage our members to learn off each other. Yeah, look, it sounds like a really great kind of constitution for, for companies to follow. I think the human rights responsibilities and that, that modern slavery angle is a really important one that people might not quite appreciate. I think we're lucky here in Australia. But I mean, a number of years ago, I was in New York. I was actually doing an internship with the Global Compact at the headquarters over there. And there was a lot of focus on, on modern slavery in, in supply chains. It's, it's still sort of going on globally, but because of the nature of what was going on in the UK with new legislation, it was quite topical. And, you know, they had had imposed legislation on modern slavery. I think it's, that's quite abstract to some people because I kind of assumed that we got rid of slavery yeah. a century ago. But the yeah. reality is that many companies don't have complete control of their supply chain of their factories so there was that legislation in the uk and i think that's been followed on in australia the time spans are quite long in getting that stuff in so what's the global compact in australia doing to, to help its members on that particular issue so we've been very heavily involved in the process for the creation of the commonwealth modern slavery act which came into effect at the end of last year from our perspective, that included participating in the inquiry and we've got a continuous engagement agreement with Home Affairs. There's also a New South Wales Act, Modern Slavery Act, which has slightly different criteria than the Commonwealth Act. The main difference is that the Commonwealth Act applies to companies with revenues greater than 100 million, whereas the New South Wales Act is 50 million and above. So there's that bit of differentiation between the two. In March last year, the Global Compact Network Australia launched its modern slavery community practice. So this small group was put together by us to help Australian businesses to navigate the developments in modern slavery and share learnings in a really safe place. Part of this modern slavery community of practice is to ensure that it's very interactive, it's an invitation-only forum and it operates under the Chatham House rule. We meet quarterly with that. We rotate meetings between um, Melbourne, Sydney and Perth. And really the purpose of that is to discuss the most pressing challenges and obstacles facing Australian businesses with respect to managing and communicating their modern slavery risks, assisting them with implementing the new legislation and also discussing good practice about how to respond to these challenges. We also work with our members who are part of that group to help provide a business perspective to relevant external discussions. So for example, that's included inviting Home Affairs and the New South Wales Department of Premier and Cabinet into these meetings to get feedback about the guidance materials that they're respectively putting together for the legislation, allow Home Affairs and the New South Wales Government to ask our members questions about what would be useful in the guidance notes. For example, do businesses want a template that they just have to complete to report about their modern slavery acts or does it make more sense just to provide broad guidance and then for those businesses to submit a statement in a shape and form that suits them, which would be more akin to what the UK Modern Slavery Act looks like at the moment. 
It also gives both the federal and New South Wales governments a really good insight into what our members are already doing to identify and combat modern slavery in their supply chain and demonstrates to them how much cross-sector and cross-industry learning does actually happen in these forums. So in effect, we've almost become a, a formal consultation channel for both Home Affairs and the New South Wales government to ensure that when they release their guidance notes, they're helpful for business and they don't become a hindrance. Having said that, I still think there's a lot of work that you know we can still do. We were involved in discussions with the government and making sure that our views about the Act going ahead were really clear. But I think where there's probably still a fair bit of learning is is how we, we work with the sort of small to medium enterprise part of Australian businesses. And in some respects, they're the ones who are going to be engaged most heavily by the bigger end of town when they're asked to complete modern slavery, I guess, risk assessments to state that they don't have modern slavery in their supply chain. And, you know, there is quite fairly a risk that there'll be a large administrative burden on that part of the business sector. And so it's something that we've discussed with both Home Affairs and the New South Wales government. And I think it's something they're quite cognizant of and something that we can do as a business association here is to engage that SME part of our membership to find out from them what would be really useful with respect to the Act. So you help your members really directly. And then I guess the Global Compact more broadly produces a lot of material. And so can other companies or, you know, individuals that aren't members that can still engage and, and use the um, materials that you guys write and produce? Yes, to be fair, we haven't produced a lot of public material on the, the Modern Slavery Act to date. I mean, it did only come into effect at the end of last year, but there is definitely going to be resources released onto our website throughout the year in relation to the Act. And then on a global scale through the UN Global Compact, there's a raft of information available online to non-members of the UN Global Compact with respect to decent work, which is associated with modern slavery, and more broadly with respect to labour rights. You know, in your past, you've helped companies with their human rights responsibilities, also in terms of corporate sustainability and, and that kind of thing. Can you tell us a bit more about, you know, your background and how you ended up coming into the uh, United Nations, quite a shift from the corporate world? Yeah, sure. I think um, the Global Compact Network, whilst it might be you know, part of that broader UN world and it's, it's an NGO, the focus of it is still on the private sector. So really, it's not that far removed from my corporate life. My background was predominantly in financial services. I started my career on ANZ's graduate program and worked across many of their wholesale banking and corporate banking functions. I always had an interest in sustainability and corporate responsibility. So, you know, as a kid, I had dreams of being a freedom fighter and rescuing Nelson Mandela from Roman Island. I wrote an environmental magazine about climate change and banning CFCs when I was coming into my teens. And while I was working for ANZ, I met a man, Bruce McMullen, who still works for ANZ now, who at the time was writing ANZ's policies for lending to industries such as forestry and extractives. So his work really interested me and I was very determined from that point to work in a job that allowed me to demonstrate how strongly corporates can contribute to positive change. After that, I started doing my master's in social science and then I moved to London and that's where I was working for corporate affairs for Standard Chartered in a sustainability role. 
And there I was responsible for stakeholder engagement on their corporate responsibility strategy, which included advising them on reputation risk matters associated with deals that held a high level of environmental, social or governance risk. So it was a really great role, lots of interesting projects, lots of I guess what now we would see as environmental and social dilemmas. I was lucky enough that it took me to many places around the world, including living in Singapore. From there, I returned to Australia. I worked in consulting and then I spent two years working for Save the Children Australia, again, advising them on environmental and social governance issues associated with their partnerships and donations. I then also set up their policies, risk assessment tools and due diligence processes. Then after a short stint with KPMG's sustainability team, I moved to NAB and that's where I was responsible for stakeholder engagement on ESG matters. And that also included consumer advocacy matters such as irresponsible lending, which was a bit different to my my normal more you know, human rights, climate change and broader environment focus. And that landed me on the opportunity to work on the Royal Commission into the financial services sector. And it was while I was working on the Royal Commission that I saw the executive director role advertised. And I think for me, I knew the next step in my career would either be running a corporate responsibility function for a mid-sized company or sort of running a not-for-profit style entity. So realistically, the Global Compact Network is a perfect fit for me because it aligns very strongly with my values and it still allows me to engage heavily with the private sector whilst consulting more broadly or maybe not consulting, but providing assistance to companies more broadly on how to achieve responsible business practices. Wow, that's quite an experience. I mean, you've certainly been engaged in sustainability and in corporate sustainability for a long time. You must have seen a lot of changes over that time. I mean, I think one would hope that it's been sort of a a continuum of increasing sustainability performance and, you know, reducing emissions. But we're in a crazy time now where we've got US and Australian government seem... I don't know, unable or maybe unwilling to sort of regulate. And, and now the role, the responsibility is falling on, on the private sector a lot more. How do you see that shift and that evolution? It's a shame what's happening in the US, I think. The trend that we're seeing in the US is not just across climate change, but it's far more broader. And I think business is really stepping up and, and taking a strong stand on you know numerous political, economic and social issues. You know, we're seeing this across the US, but we are also seeing this trend in Australia. And I think it's clear that many businesses in the US have decided that they just simply can't be apolitical. It's become particularly apparent under the Trump administration. You know, we're seeing businesses explicitly supporting the Paris Agreement, while the Trump administration discusses that they want to pull out. You know, over the years, we've seen a lot of evidence that's shown a shift towards a resilient, low-carbon economy that will boost prosperity, be a net driver of job creation. And businesses understand that by embedding sort of ESG dimensions across their operations, that they're far more likely to reap the financial rewards and also attract positive sentiment from the investor community. Clearly, it's in the best interest of all of us to support the Paris Agreement and to institute targets that enable us to limit global warming. You know, it's not just about making societal sense. It makes very sound financial and business sense. From my perspective, I see the global energy transition being well and truly underway and and businesses are aware of the need to use innovation and technology to meet the needs of that transition. And they'll naturally emerge out of this sort of new economy. 
I think businesses also understand the societal value that comes from embedding ESG across their businesses, not to mention the growing momentum from people like yourself and also from me who are really demanding that businesses take their role in society and take their role in the environment a lot more seriously. You know, having said that, I don't think that discounts the need for governments to give a clear steer and provide the necessary frameworks and regulatory environments through which businesses can operate. Businesses need assurances from governments. They need to know that whatever products they're producing will be supported by regulations and policies put forward and supported by the government. And I think this is where organisations like the GCNA are in a prime position to support businesses to navigate this landscape, you know, because we are seen as a respected and trusted convener and we've clearly demonstrated our ability to bring together governments and other businesses, civil society, academic institutions and work together to address key themes linked to our 10 principles but also to the sustainable development goals. The other thing that I think we've been very good at and we continue to be really good at is being aware of and identifying the key trends that might impact our members and helping them to address these issues providing a safe space for those robust dialogues. So, for example, what I was talking about before with the modern slavery community of practice, these are really critical places for business to discuss how they can address these challenges and what they can learn off each other to move forward and go past sort of business as usual. So overall, I think, you know, we are seeing businesses demonstrate really clear leadership in this space and and that's not discounting the leadership that civil society and academic institutions take but it's really good to see this momentum continue and I think over the course of my career the whole notion of sustainability and corporate responsibility and responsible business has become really part of the business vernacular whereas when I started in my career it was very much off to the side and you know, I remember people questioning me, well, why would you want to, you know, are you sure that this is right for your career? Are you sure you're going to have a job in 10 years' time? And now it's, I think, companies that don't have an approach to corporate responsibility, there's a big question mark over them. I think that's right. And I think the SDGs, the Sustainability Development Goals, have emerged as a really clear framework for these companies to do that. Uh, you know, they have, the SDGs are made up of, of 17 global goals. Yeah. The um, Global Compact have their 10 principles. How do they interact? So the SDGs, like I said, they're a set of ambitious goals. Um, they lay out a path to 2030 by addressing what was determined to be the most pressing environmental, social and governance challenges globally. They were agreed by all 193 member states of the UN, so this includes Australia, and they apply to all countries. So their predecessor, the Millennium Development Goals, only applied to developing countries. These apply to all companies. How they link with us is that the UNGC is based on the fundamental premise of businesses acting responsibility and then finding opportunities to solve societal challenges through business innovation and collaboration. And this really is the foundation for companies seeking to advance the SDGs. By following the 10 principles and thereby acting responsibly, it gives businesses the opportunity to then spend some time on that business innovation side of things and advance the SDGs, place them at the core of the company's values and culture. So in practice, companies sort of identify, prevent, mitigate and account for any negative impacts that they may cause or contribute to. And then they consider the business risks that they have 
across 17 SDGs and can adjust their business practices to avoid harm. And realistically, if, if all companies took steps to decrease harm, i.e. things like respecting human rights, not polluting waterways or the air, not participating in bribery and corruption, we'd actually go a long way towards achieving the SDGs. However, it's also fair to say that global challenges like climate change need private sector solutions and they present a really big opportunity for our members and also non-members. By companies redirecting their investments to align to the SDGs, it really does give the potential for companies to achieve the SDGs through things like taking up the women's empowerment principles, implementing a really solid water management plan, implementing and abiding by a human rights policy. So the UN Global Compact was actually given the mandate from the UN to be the business conduit to operationalising the SDGs. And I think it's very clear why we have that mandate. You know, many of our companies have already been supporting and integrating the SDG agenda for quite some time and probably well before it was known as the SDG agenda. Many of our businesses already have human rights policies. They proactively tackle bribery and corruption and they, they work towards minimising their environmental footprint. If I step back and think about what a lot of our members here in Australia have been doing over the years, they're doing things that tackle things like gender equality, whether that's through introducing a long-term commitment to having pay parity or the number of women on their board. We're also seeing our members contribute really strongly to supplier diversity and social procurement programs. They implement things like financial inclusion action plans that foster financial resilience and, and help get those who are excluded from the financial system actually working towards being more financially resilient for the long term. And we're also seeing really innovative products like new finance mechanisms like a women's livelihood bond or green bonds and, and even more recently an SDG bond, which I think demonstrates very clearly that SDGs don't just present sort of this almost superfluous pie-in-the-sky goal, that they're, they're actually representative of things that we can achieve continuously through just not doing anything bad in respect to how we run our businesses, but also just seeking those opportunities that can spur the ability for us to achieve the goals far more quickly. And close to home, in Australia, um, I mean, in 2016, uh, the Global Compact, the Australian Network launched a, a CEO statement for the SDGs. Yep. And, and this was really interesting. You know, I thought it was a really interesting moment. You had 30 CEOs sort of putting their hands up saying we're going to sign on to this commitment to address the goals. Be interested to, you know, a bit of an update. Are there any great examples there of companies that have um, pushed it? Last year, we actually launched an SDG website, so www.sdg.org.au. This website's going through a bit of a transformation at the moment and will, in time, act as a unique portal through which all relevant information that links to the SDGs in Australia will be effectively housed on this website. So it will become this one-stop shop for businesses, governments, civil society and academic institutions to really learn, reach out, be exposed to and understand what's happening across the Australian landscape and across the many sectors that are working towards the SDGs. And these sites are really critical to bring together a view of the many stakeholders working towards the SDGs and to enable a greater level of dialogue to take place in Australia. And I think through this website, we've been able to identify very clear examples of companies shifting their operations towards aligning to the SDGs and making a real impact. 
The website at the moment collects case studies from across Australia. So at the moment, we have about 150 unique stories that highlight very specific examples that deliver impact. So for example, Bank Australia, who's one of our members, recently won a Banksia Foundation Large Business Award. And they're a really great example of a small retail customer-owned bank who own about a 927-hectare conservation nature reserve that they own on behalf of their customers. And the reserve is a world-class project that protects biodiverse Australian bushland, including 13 threatened species. So it's a really great project and demonstrates their commitment to fulfilling both environmental and social outcomes. Another great example is Rio Tinto, so large Australian British mining company, and they support their workforce towards navigating challenges that result out of automation and, and digitization. So, for example, a range of new roles were created when Rio Tinto introduced its driverless trucks in its Western Australian Hope Downs iron ore mine in 2014. And these included entirely new roles such as controllers to operate and monitor these driverless vehicles, pit controllers to monitor and manage vehicle operations on site, and communication and systems engineering specialists to provide fault diagnostic. Rio committed around $2 million to support the industry, government, and also the education sector to really collaboratively develop and deliver new nationally recognised qualifications in automation. And so these qualifications will actually become available through TAFE colleges and high schools in WA later this year. Whilst that might sort of seem a bit removed from the SDGs, what it actually shows is that they're working towards broadly contributing to human rights, which when you look at the SDGs, human rights really does fit into all of them. But they're also really working towards the SDG on quality education and, and providing new opportunities for you know, not only the future generation of work, but the existing generation of work. And I think these are just, I mean, whilst there are only two examples, they're two quite unique and diverse examples of initiatives that businesses are taking towards meeting the SDGs. And there's obviously many, many more on the website. That final example, is, is that sort of a, an example of a company in putting in a project that, you know, will help their own workers, but I guess more broadly in Australia, AI and, and shifting the workforce... Yeah towards automation is going to be, you know, a big disruptive force. So it's, I mean, many might not think a multinational mining company would be a sustainability leader, but I guess you guys are helping, you know, all companies be the best that they can and, and find ways that they can improve um, all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is a misconception in some respects that the mining sector and, and more broadly that sort of oil and gas sector don't contribute strongly to positive environmental and social outcomes and and i do think that's a, a misunderstanding in some respects because some of these really big miners and, and even some of the smaller ones as well actually contribute really really strongly to the sdgs you know, last year we um we peer reviewed a report written by one of our members cardno and the minerals council of australia which is the first of what I believe will be a change of focus for the Minerals Council of Australia to look at what their members are doing to contribute to the SDGs. And, and it looked at a raft of different examples across the minerals sector of, of what companies are doing to implement and achieve the SDGs. And it was a great report to peer review because it gave some really good insights into, you know, the top end of town, your, the likes of your BHPs and your Rios, but all the way down to sort of a lot of mining companies who I'm sure many of Australians haven't heard of. So the likes of St. Barbara, for example, 
for me, it gave really great perspective on what these companies are doing to actually step back and strategically look at the SDGs, not sort of do a project and then retrospectively go, oh, look, we've managed to achieve SDG 3 over the right to public health or whichever SDG it might be. I think there's a lot of positives coming out of those companies. It's not just the, the sort of social enterprises or the, the fast-moving consumer goods companies who are, who are working towards removing plastics out of their production cycle. It's actually right across the board that we're seeing very positive change. Yeah, and I guess a lot of that, sure, there's regulation, but, you know, a lot of pressure from the public, you know, this building focus on, on companies and sustainability and, and being good corporate citizens. So I would see a lot of that change has been driven by the public. I just say people yeah, should you know, keep up that pressure and that's really good. And, and I think the Global Compact is helping drive that and, and, and channel a lot of that. And you did mention the uh, SDG website that you guys are running. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But another mm-hmm. tool I've used is the, the SDG Compass. I think that's a yep. really great way for people to understand the 17 goals, but then the, what is it, 160, 170 um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, targets that sit behind them. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, that tool's really great for people that, I mean, they might be a sustainability manager, but they might just be in a company that they want to engage more and use it as a framework. It's a really great stepping off point for them to help them understand how their industry can apply the SDGs. That's a great one to check out. I've got another final question and that's for a book recommendation. You've been in this space for a long time. um, And yeah, if you've got any recommendations that really shifted your view, that'd be great. Yeah, I guess um, it's an oldie, (laughs) but it's a goodie. I think one of the books that fundamentally shifted the way that I thought about things and to a certain extent when I was doing my master's, it was something that I really spurred me in some way to to do my master's in, in social science. And that's The End of Poverty by Jeffrey Sachs. At the time that he wrote the book, he was a special advisor to Kofi Annan and he's a he's a developmental economist. I'm sure that a lot of people listening to this podcast would know who he is. You know, he came out to Melbourne last year and and gave a lecture. He was also fundamental in the creation of the sustainable development goals. And for me, you know, that book really demonstrated the power of humans in some respects to to make a real difference for those people living in extreme poverty and and how partnerships between the private sector and civil society and government can actually change the world and and like he said end poverty and you know that it is possible in our lifetime and in a lot of respects it just requires us to be more cognizant of what we're doing on a daily basis, both in our work lives, but in our daily lives. And that book was a real inspiration for me. And, you know, I still follow Jeffrey Sachs through Twitter and I I read a lot of his reports and his academic papers. And I, I just think he's a really inspirational person. Yeah, I think I remember that book as well. I think it it was an interesting time uh, and I think, you know, a lot of people engaged with development and this question of poverty and and the private sector. I mean, he he made some pretty outlandish claims of, you know, let's eradicate poverty completely. And and people, I think, had always had this view of, oh, there's always going to be a bit of poverty. It's just the nature of of our world and that sort of thing. But he, he put numbers on it. He said, well, if we have this, you know, X number of trillion dollars, we could do it. Um, you know, that it was rather a question of will 
rather than a structural impossibility. So yeah, I think that was an interesting time. I remember um, Dan Lisa Moyo also wrote Dead Aid at the time. Yep. Had a very almost, uh, I don't know, I think it was a good counterpoint, her book, because it took the same issue from a different perspective. And yeah, I think that really started, it certainly got me thinking about the issues and, and I still remember both those ones. So yeah, that's a great tip for um, for people that haven't got to that one. And I think Timeless, because... Um, you know, that was at around the time of the MDGs, the Millennium yeah, Development Goals, 20, yeah. 2000 to 2015. And we're now in the period of the SDGs up to 2030. So, yeah, yeah. good stuff. Yeah. Lots of positivity there. we just got to um, keep up the fight. Yes, definitely. All right. Well, thank you for your time today, Kylie. Um, you're down in Melbourne, but uh, if you're ever up in Sydney, drop me a line. I will. Thanks, John. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Bye.